Um, I'm actually starting at 2.19, not, not 2.17. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in the to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. If you cast your eyes down, you'll see uh, in that first, uh, second verse, so it's a little phrase, get up, and then later go, get up, and go. And they're probably very similar words that were said to the gunmen in Paris and Belgium, aren't they? But as God appeared to Joseph in that dream saying, get up and go, well, we see that in the passage, Joseph's obedient response resulted not in the taking of life, but rather in the preserving of a life. Very sadly, in Europe, in the last week or more, uh, 20 people have been killed and there will be ripples, won't there? In the media and the satirical magazines like Child, Charlie Hebdo, uh, that will happen for a while. Political ways may even be seen for years. You think of the new laws and the powers that will be brought in to curb such atrocities that have happened. And turbulence within communities may even last a generation. Possible retributive action may happen, and I'm sure increased segregation. But that will be it. Oh yeah, I mean, 20 lives have been taken, but that will be it. And history tells us that within a generation, it will be completely forgotten. I doubt that our children will be studying this for their history GCSE, for example. Get up and go. Some men with inhuman aims were obedient to such an instruction, but the taking of 20 lives will have very, very little effect for the course of human history. But the effect of one man's obedience to get up and go, well, that has run like a tsunami throughout history with increasing velocity, with increasing power. Did you know that uh, the estimated population of the world is just top 7 billion? Now let me get qu- run through some quick stats for you statos out there, okay? Of that 7 billion, there's 14 million who claim to be Jews, 22 million who claim to be Sikhs, 100 million various new religions of varying sorts, 150 million atheists, 250 million tribal religions, mainly in Africa, 350 million Buddhists, 800 million Hindus, 1 billion classified as non-religious, that's mainly Chinese and Japanese, 1.5 billion Muslims and 2.3 billion Christians. You see, under the sovereign power of God, a man choosing to get up and to go to preserve one life has led to a change in human history that can never be ignored. An estimated 2.3 billion people around the world follow that one life, trust that one life, and even worship that one life. 
I don't know as you heard that list of statistics, maybe some of you kind of got to it and you kind of go, hey, I'm a stato, I can work it out. That's 32.8% of the whole world population. Nathan's nodding, he was there. You know, they're going, they're, they're, we're there, they're, that's the Christians. But we all know, don't we, that that is not representative of London. Nearing 3 to 4%. And you may be sitting there saying, well, there's a lot of work to do. Oh, you might be sitting there as well as you heard those statistics and you're going, hey, whew, our team came top. Yeah, whew, yeah, we're all happy now. Maybe you're just confused, given the terrible and the brutal persecution of Christians around the world right now. And the fact that you perhaps even feel an increasing low-level hostility to you and your Christian faith within <coughs> the culture in which you live as well. But have you ever wondered, given that, you know, 23 32.8%, you know, Christians in the world, we are the largest religious group, the largest, as the stats sort of say, is the largest cognitive community. But have you ever thought where that largest cognitive community, community originates? Would you describe the origin of our faith as a position of power or a position of humility? Because what we're seeing here in Matthew 2 uh, is that the Christian faith begins with a baby, a fragile, weak, dependent person. Hardly, it's, it's hardly the position of a power, is it? <coughs> See, our faith is not a political or a military movement like Islam, for example, that has expanded through fear and the use of sword. Christianity tried that and it failed terribly. Uh, especially in the Crusades, about 800 years or more ago. The Crusades, they were scandalous and a historical shame to the Church of God. But we must consider, it's been prayed already, that the killings of Boko Haram uh, outnumber the Crusades already in the few years that they've been going. Uh, Stalin, in the name of no God, slaughtered many, many, many more people. For example, the, the Road of Bones that were constructed in the far east of Russia... Uh, it is estimated that one person died for every metre of the construction of that road. It leads to a city called Yakutsk, the, the farthest eastern city in Russia, and the road is over 2,000 kilometres long. You do the maths. See, Christianity did not uh, originate with an, uh, an obvious display of power and of might. It hasn't grown through fear and the use of the sword. Also, Christianity does not originate through the growth of emerging, you know, kind of a common practice within a culture like many of the Eastern religions did. Christianity just burst on the scene. And what we see in our passage today is that bursting on the scene. It is the origins of our faith, not obviously impressive, not the wielding of a power or of sword, but rather it is the powerful preservation of one humble life. It's a story of a baby, humble in form and weak in stature, but one who in love, not in fear, has emerged as the great leader above all leaders. It's a story of a baby who not with sword, but with loving words and sacrificial service gave himself humbly for you and me. The story of a baby, a baby who is a saving king. 
Matthew writes this gospel message, this historical narrative, with this main purpose, to show us that this baby is king. The king above all kings. Now let me give you a bit of background if I can. Matthew is a, is a tax-collecting bureaucrat, essentially. He lives a kind of tortured combination, one scholar put it. Uh, he's Jewish by birth, Roman by employment. But most importantly, we need to note, he's one of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples. And he writes predominantly, as each uh, gospel has a predominant audience, he writes predominantly to the Jewish community, trying to persuade them that this baby born in humility is the promised king of their scriptures. You can see that's Matthew's intention. Just flick back, if you can, just one page, uh, to chapter 1, verse 1. Now, if you're new to Christian things, uh, let me just go through. Uh, the big numbers in your Bibles, they're the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are, are the verse numbers. And uh, I kind of call out numbers of pages as well, if that's helpful. Sorry to patronise, but that, that, if it's new to you, that's, that's helpful, I hope. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, though. His use of the title, the son of David there, and son of Abraham, shows that he has a particular group in mind as he writes. It's the Jews. Therefore, Matthew quotes, as we go through this, um, this gospel account, you'll see he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel account. He even structures his letter, his gospel, uh, with five, kind of five uh, major teaching sections, hopefully um, to mirror the, the teaching of, of Moses back in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. And we find ourselves actually in one of the bookends, but it, um, at the end of those five major teaching sections of Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 11 is essentially the bookend, the introduction to the whole Gospel. And this section introduces Jesus before he begins his ministry and addresses the big question, if you like. Is Jesus qualified to be called the King? Is he the Messiah Christ, the King? And so he challenges his readers, showing them that despite Jesus' fragile appearance as this tiny baby, despite the Jews' false expectations of what a king would really look like, Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, Matthew presents Jesus as the king. So looking back, if we can, just, just scoot through. Because we've been going through this since uh, December the 4th, but it's been Christmas and we don't really remember. Do you actually remember December? Probably not. But there we go. You know, let's go back through it very quickly. Chapter 1 deals with the issues of his ancestry. Chapter 2 looks more at where he's gone, his geography. So look at it. chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. He, de- he demonstrates that Jesus is the true son of David. That's he's the Messiah. He's in the line of the great king of God's people. And he came at the right time and in the right way. Chapter 1, verse 18 through to 25, though he's legally Joseph's son, it shows there that Jesus is God's true son, who's come to save us from our sins. That is not to save us, as the Jews expected, uh, from Roman rule, but to save us from our sins, the most important thing. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, Jesus is then the king, the true king of Israel. Why born in the city of David in Bethlehem? And he's worshipped by all who come to him. And then we hold these little sections that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks, verse 13 to 15. Jesus is shown as the true Israel. That is the truly obedient one, faithful in every way. And last week, Ash brilliantly showed us in those few verses, verse 16 to 18, that earthly earthly powers will always oppose Jesus and his followers. Jesus is the true king. And we see that again and again. We've looked in very short, dense sections at this uh, this chapter. 
And it's very easy to get bogged down. It's very technical. It's very kind of, there's lots of kind of prophecy and fulfillment language. It's structured in a very kind of dense way. But in the midst of that is the most amazing story. And I don't want that to get lost. So what I want us to do over these uh, few moments today is to look at kind of the three repetitive themes that have been the backbone to the story so far. As we look back through chapter two, I don't want us to get to chapter three essentially next week and go, oh yeah, I really understand the technical language of uh, Matthew's gospel. I see where the structure is going. I want us to see that. But what I want us to see is our jaws hit the ground, gobsmacked that Jesus is the true king. I want us to look at three things. They're on your sheets. The sovereign power of God, the humble obedience of Joseph, and the amazing fulfilment of scripture. But first, if I can, I want to throw us back into the story, if I can. Chapter 2 focuses, begins its focus sorry, with these Persian stargazers. There's a bit of an air of mystery about them, isn't there? Uh, They would have been very wealthy, powerful, magi as they're described here. We like to call them wise men, don't we, in in the schools and so on. They came to worship a baby, may even be a toddler by this time. I don't know if you've ever considered just just the magnitude, the intensity of that situation. Powerful, wealthy men bowing down and worshiping baby stroke toddler. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And they bring these astonishing gifts for a baby. Gifts fit only for a king. Imagine Mary and Joseph, their hearts would have soared. You know, no more kind of deferring the credit card bills in January because look, they've got gold, they've got frankincense, they've got myrrh. The story is just, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? Even the Magi's journey, following the star, what a frightening thing that would have been. I don't know if you've ever, can you ever imagine this? You know, someone turns up, your, up at your door, you haven't seen them for ages, they've come from a long distance away, they've not used a sat-nav, they've not got a map out, uh, they, they've not used any kind of common kind of local knowledge. No, they followed a star. You open a door, boom, there's a star there. Can you imagine? Can you think how Mary and Joseph would have gone to sleep that night? What do you think their dreams would have been filled with? You know, there's been a virgin birth. The Magi have come to worship this Messiah King. They've got gold and frankincense and myrrh at the bottom of the bed. Wow. All this for a baby. All this for a baby. Shortly after they go their separate ways, the Magi via a different route and Joseph with Mary and baby to Egypt. Herod's homicidal rages uh, were very well known. And at their escape, you see in chapter 2, verse 3, they were literally shaken and all of Jerusalem with them. Essentially, that's pointing to the fact that Jerusalem would have been on tenderhooks. Herod was wild. No one could predict what he would do in a rage. So Joseph waits to go to Egypt. They exit Bethlehem quietly. You can imagine their steps were very quick, very light. 75 miles to the provincial border. They've got 500 miles of a whole journey to go down to Egypt. The flight, the journey, which we kind of looked at, it's amazing in itself. Let me quickly go through it. The the geography, they would have gone over the Judean Ark to Beersheba, the whole way through the wilderness of Sin, down to the Sinai Peninsula, and finally find themselves on the Nile in Egypt. Why? Well, because... Egypt was a great place to hide. It was one of the first kind of secure places outside of the jurisdiction of Herod, who wanted to kill them. 
We don't know how far down the Nile Jesus got, but wouldn't it be nice to think if he actually got to the pyramids? Who knows? They had provisions. They had the gold. They had the frankincense. They had the myrrh. Joseph may have even found work. We're not sure. But amidst that story, and it is the story that I want to, it's essentially to grip you today. With that amazing story, there are these three recurring themes. We're going to look at them very quickly now to finish. There's the sovereign power of God. There's the obedience of Joseph, the humble obedience of Joseph. And the amazing fulfillment of scripture. Let's look at each of those very quickly. Firstly, the the sovereign power of God. See, everywhere you look within this passage, within this historical narrative, you see God's loving, intervening power being displayed. The star. The magi, the dream that they have, warning them about Herod's plans. Joseph's dream about going to Egypt. God's sovereign power is, if you like, the backbone to this whole episode. Not one circumstance is outside of his control or his gaze. And likewise, as you turn to the passage, our passage today, look at verse 19 if you can. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. It's one of four dreams that God works in and through to continue his initiative in preserving and guiding the life of this Christmas baby, Jesus, the King. And if your chin is not on the quite touching the ground yet, consider God's power in comparison to that of Herod's. It's always good, isn't it? It's kind of a contrast to compare. Let's do it if we can. I would like at this moment to have kind of one of those kind of commentator wrestling voices. I'm in the red corner. I'm not going to do it, so I won't embarrass anyone. But yeah, let's imagine Herod for a moment. He's the Roman ruler in Judea. He has what is called the Ias Gladii. That is, he can, uh, at any moment, without any kind of ramifications for him, he can chop someone's head off. Extraordinary power. But in the blue corner over here, we've got God, the sovereign creator and ruler of all things. He rules over the whole universe. Not just Judea, but the whole universe. He can even halt the evil plans of, of Herod by intervening through people's dreams. Oh, let's go back over here to the red corner. We've got Herod again, okay? He's a man who will live for just a short while with a reign of terror. Oh, let's go back over here, the blue corner. We've got God who is eternal and who will reign with love and mercy for those who would trust him. Let's go back to the red corner again, to to Herod. Uh, Herod at his death. Let me read some of this to you. So this is what history tells us. Not biblical history, but Jewish history. This is what it tells us about Herod. The man called Josephus, he wrote this and noted that the just punishment was coming on Herod for his lawless deeds. That's the way he put it. Herod actually died of gangrene and was eaten from the inside by the worms. He was a monster to the last. And near his end, he assembled the leading men of Judea and had them locked up in the Hippodrome. And then he summoned his sister and his husband and gave them the following instructions. And I quote, I know this is Herod speaking to his sister. I know that the Jews will celebrate my death with a festival, yet I can obtain a vicarious mourning and a magnificent funeral if you consent to my instructions. You know these men here in custody, the moment I expire or die, have them surrounded by soldiers and massacred. So shall all Judea and every household weep for me, whether they will or not. 
Now, it never happened because Herod's sister Salome uh, freed the Judean men. No tears were shed for Herod. Just joy at his disgusting demise. That's the red corner. But over here in the blue corner, we've got the eternal God, who at Herod's death instructs Joseph to get up to go, to take the promised king, the fragile child, back to Israel. Herod's dead. God is alive in his awesome power. Joseph probably wanted to take Jesus and Mary back to Bethlehem. And there was an expectation actually within the the community at the time that uh, on Herod the Great's death that Herod Antipas would take on uh, his rule. And that was going to be okay. But in his last moments, Herod the Great did a very unusual thing that he appointed someone. And we see him in our text today, Archelaus, Archelaus, essentially the most ruthless possible successor. So once again, having been warned in this dream, Joseph changes route and ends up in the region of Galilee. He's a powerful man. And in times when power could be wielded in the most terrifying ways, but who's in control? Who has the ultimate power? It's the sovereign power of God, isn't it? But I wonder, just thinking about it for ourselves as we consider this Amazing backbone to this story. I wonder, we may speak of the sovereign power of God, but do we struggle to acknowledge it and trust it day by day? Perhaps in the reality of the circumstances of our lives, the struggles we face, the disappointments, the failures that beset us all, do they lead us to doubt or even dismiss the sovereign power of God? Do you trust his powerful guiding hand in your work, in your decisions, perhaps in your relationships? I guess a good test of that would be to ask yourself how much you are turning to him, how much you are listening to him as you look at his word, the Bible. How much are you turning to him and trusting him in prayer? You're trusting his power and his sovereignty over your life. But maybe like... So many people, you trust another power. The power of your wallet. Maybe just the power of your charisma that you can get through any kind of social situation because you're just that charming. Maybe it's your, your intellect. Maybe it's your beauty. The sovereign power of God, I want us to look at it, yes? Of course, we want to be amazed by it here in the story. But most importantly, we need to trust it. Secondly, and in response to God's sovereign power, uh, this whole section is littered with these wonderful examples of the humble obedience of Joseph. Let's take uh, that, if we can, as the kind of second backbone, if we can have two backbones, uh, going through the, uh, this uh, little narrative. See, we know Joseph right back at the beginning of uh, chapter 1. is described as a righteous man. Chapter 1, verse 19. A man who listened to God and basically obeyed him. He feared God. He feared God more than he feared those around him. And he entrusted himself to God. The simple instruction of verse 20 to get up and go, I guess it can be very easily overlooked. Perhaps in his flight to Egypt, he didn't have the chance to pack it into his family kind of, you know, his, his family car with all the, you know, the things that families put in there. He didn't have time to do that. He just did it. He got up and he went. 
I'm not sure even the journey to, uh, to Egypt was aligned with feeding times. How could he possibly have done that? Likewise here, Joseph's personal comfort, the ease of his family and his life, well, everything is secondary, isn't it, to Joseph's obedience to the word of his loving, powerful, heavenly father. As I said before, we can assume that Joseph probably wanted to take Jesus and Mary back to Bethlehem. But once again, having heard God speak, he submitted his plans. He submitted what would have been most comfortable for him. What would have been best in his mind was to go back to Bethlehem. That's probably what he planned. And he ends up in a despised town called Nazareth. Joseph's humble obedience is so striking. It's a sobering lesson, I think, for us all. Because it's, it's easy to be inspired by this. But it's much, much harder, isn't it, to change as a result of this. And I wonder what areas we need to look at in our own lives and need to submit to the plans of God. What are you kicking against right now? Joseph didn't let his circumstances become an excuse. He was obedient. Again and again and again. God said, get up. Go. And he went. He was humble before God and obedient. And we can let so many things, can't we, become an excuse. Maybe even our age, our relationship status, maybe illness, our feelings, how we are at the time. Maybe safety, personality, finances. What excuses do you make before God such that you are disobedient rather than obedient? Oh, you know what humble obedience looks like. Hear God speak. Get up. Go. I was chatting to someone on Wednesday, actually, and uh, they're going out to the Middle East in a a year or so's time to tell people about Christ. And I had to remind him very, very, we're frank in the way that we speak. I said, you know what your life expectancy is, don't you? When you get off that plane and you start speaking of Christ in that culture. I said, it's less than two years. Yeah. But no excuses. It's a great delight to hear. Get up. Go. So we've seen the sovereign power of God, the humble obedience of Joseph, and very quickly and lastly, the amazing fulfilment uh, of Scripture. See, the last few weeks they've been focused uh, on this. uh, So I don't want to say too much. uh, But before we close, I just want to show how amazing it is. All this fulfilment of Scripture in this section. As I said right at the beginning, Matthew wants his Jewish audience uh, to to know that all of these things have occurred as fulfilment uh, of prophecy from centuries before. So back in verse 15, he shows that the birth of Christ is fulfilling a passage back in Hosea chapter 11. You can see that in the footnotes in your Bibles that you've got in front of you. God's son is described there. Uh, Even the killing of the babies in Bethlehem, the the brokenness and the weeping of the women. And the mothers, all of this, from verse 18 that was, it's all fulfilling prophecy. But now with the appointment of Archelaus and Joseph and Mary ending up in this shabby border town called Nazareth, it seems like a very dull ending to quite an amazing story, doesn't it? Now, just look down at verse 23 if you can for a moment. If you were to take out the last sentence of verse 23... It would be like the ending of a kind of a big dramatic film or a big romantic film, whatever you like. Uh, But not in some picturesque kind of romantic location. 
It would be like ending up a wonderful film that you so enjoyed in this kind of dishevelled high street, somewhere in a small, insignificant, impoverished town, somewhere. I'm not going to be prejudiced anywhere, but somewhere, okay? Basically, it feels like a letdown. An absolute kind of, oh, Nazareth, really? But Matthew finishes verse 23, and to use a John Wongism, he's going to blow your minds, essentially. Nazareth, Nazareth isn't the place anyone would choose. But this happens so to fulfill prophecy, what has been said centuries before. Now, loads has been written about this verse because if you look at the phrase there, he will be called a Nazarene, it doesn't appear in the Old Testament. It's not there. Hence, there's no footnote in your Bibles. But it is there, sort of. Let me show you how. You see, the term Nazarene was like a slur. And again, I'm not going to make any contemporary parallels because it would just seem prejudicial. Uh, But it was a slur. If you look at the book of Acts in chapter 24, verse 5, the Christians there were described as a Nazarene sect. That is, they're using it as a, a derogatory term. Because people just didn't like the place of Nazareth. And so you see, what was happening here is that Jesus grew up not as a child of Bethlehem. He wasn't a Bethlehemite. With all of the royal tones that that would have in the line of King David, in David's place. No, Jesus grew up a Nazarene. Someone despised. Someone who would be rejected. Now, how does that fulfill scripture? Well, let me read to you. From Isaiah, prophecy, 600 or more years before. And chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people will hide their faces. He was despised and, when we, held him in low, and, and we held him in low esteem. Even when Jesus prophesied of himself on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22, which earlier says... But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Oh yeah, Jesus was the branch of a royal line in chapter 1. But he lived in a place that would guarantee him scorn. He was despised and rejected. You see, this whole passage is riddled with accounts of God's sovereign protection of a Messiah. But upon his return, God sovereignly uprooting the family 500 miles down to Egypt and then 500 miles back past Bethlehem. And he takes them to Nazareth. He was the son that was called out of Egypt. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham. He's the true Israel. He's the second Moses who delivered all of these things that we've seen throughout Matthew 2. Technical as they are, but this is King Jesus who is the despised, rejected leader above all leaders. Ironically, actually past Ramah of verse 18 where there had been weeping and mourning. But that would have stopped because the joy is there now, because the king's returned. In a sense, I've finished with this way. I think if any of you are in public relations, PR, he's an absolute nightmare, isn't he, Jesus? He's humble and lowly of heart. 
Yet he offers so much. He's the true Moses, as we've seen, the ultimate deliverer. He offers to save us from our Egypts, that is, our slaveries, our sin, and the consequences of our sin. I guess the question needs to be, do you dare to trust him? Do you dare to trust him? Or are you in your kind of own Egypt, looking at imagery back in the Old Testament, trying to escape from God's loving, sovereign power? Look at Joseph. Trust the sovereign power of God in his word. Because what has been promised in and through Christ, this fragile baby, but leader of all leaders, what has been promised in him will be. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much. This is an extraordinary story. And it should grip us. It should excite us as we read this historical narrative. But there's so much there that we can learn and, and teaches us about you and your sovereignty and your power and your love being displayed in the preservation of this child who would grow up, who would live as uh, the true Israel, the perfect one. And would come as the, the true Moses, the, the one who would ultimately deliver his people. May we trust him. May we see him as the great king. Not of a people of 2,000 years ago, but of the whole world, including us today. May we submit our lives to him. And like the Magi at the beginning of chapter 2, may we bow and worship him. Honour him. Love him. Amen. It's a striking passage, isn't it?